Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. What issues come up in your life that make life a struggle? God takes notice. The Christmas season is officially upon us and 2012 is almost over. It's amazing how quickly time passes. And speaking of time passing quickly, this year marks the 35th anniversary of the release of Steven Spielberg's classic film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. If you've seen the film, you know that the storyline centers on humans making direct contact with a non-human life form. So today, as we kick off the Christmas season, we're also kicking off a brand new series here at Cross Culture Church entitled Close Encounters of the Most Important Kind. Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four examples of men and women, humans, who came into contact with a life form not of this earth, namely angels, and how and why that contact became the most important event in their entire lives and really became the most important event in our lives. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Over the next four weeks, Pastor Clay is going to take us through some of the close encounters with angels that took place at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. As we look at these encounters, we might just find some important truths for our own lives. Today, we're in Luke chapter 1 to take a closer look at a close encounter between a priest named Zacharias and the angel Gabriel. We're glad you've joined us today. Now here's Pastor Clay with this week's Close Encounter of the Most Important Kind. In the film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the, the, the premise of the film is that men and women, humans, came into contact with a life form not from this earth. Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four examples of men and women, humans, who came into contact with a life form not of this earth, namely angels, and how and why that contact became the most important event in their entire lives, and how and why their contact, their event, really became the most important event in our lives. Because of what the angels, the messengers, were coming to prepare the world for. If you brought a copy of God's Word today, I encourage you to open it to Luke chapter 1. John read the text a moment ago. Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 25 is the, close, is the account of the close encounter between a man, a priest, I'll talk about it in a minute, named Zacharias... And an angel named Gabriel. There's some things that I want to uh, point out about that encounter that are important for your life and, and my life. What's going on in your life? What's happening in your world? What issues come up in your life that, that make life a struggle at times? We're going to talk about some of those things, I suspect, as we walk through uh, this passage of Scripture today. I want to start with uh, this idea this morning. If you happen to like to take notes, there's an outline on the back of your information sheet. Please feel free to do so or just follow along. God takes notice of our lives. Now listen, I'm going to read the text in just a minute. I'm going to read it again. But listen, just stop for a minute. 
Just think about your life. Think about your circumstances. Think about all that you're going through or, or have gone through or probably are going to go through. Think about the questions that you ask. Come on. Think about the questions that you ask. God, are you even there? Do you even care? God takes notice of our lives. Let me read verse 5 and 6 to you again this morning. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Aaron was the first priest in the line, so she was of a priestly line. And her name was Elizabeth. Watch this, verse 6. They were, meaning Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. According to 1 Chronicles 24, the, the priesthood was divided into a number of divisions. 24, I believe. Divisions. According to, uh, of which Zacharias, as the text says, was a part of the eighth division of the priesthood, the division known as Abijah. I have no idea what it means, but that was the division that he was in. According to the book of Leviticus, a priest was required to marry an Israelite virgin. But it did not necessarily have to be a woman from the line of Aaron. Didn't have to, in other words, a priest didn't necessarily have to marry uh, a woman who was of the priestly line. You understand what I'm saying? And so the fact that Zacharias did marry a woman of the priestly line, uh, her descendants, she was descended from Aaron, the fact that he did marry a woman from the priestly line would have almost been like a, uh, um, kind of almost like a double blessing. You know, it's like not only was he able to, did he find the woman that he fell in love with and he married her and, and all that kind of stuff, but, but she was actually of the, of the priestly line as well. And, and I'm pretty sure that as they started out their lives as a young couple, I look around here, I see a lot of young couples in here, as they started out their lives as a young couple, with their whole uh, lives in front of them, I'm sure that they felt extremely blessed in that moment. Their, their marriage and, you know, all, all that God had. I'm sure they felt extremely blessed and, and, and were looking forward to all that God had uh, for them in the future. And by the way, I'm sure that they were blessed. But life doesn't always turn out the way we thought it was going to, does it? Life can throw us some curveballs now and again, can't it? Zacharias and Elizabeth were unable to bear children. That's where we're going in the text. You heard it a few moments ago. And in the midst of all that's going on, here's what I want you to notice. Verse 6, again. They were both righteous in the sight of God. In other words, here they are. Now, we'll get to the, issue, the problem in a, in a minute. But here they are, this young couple... Starting out, now they're an old couple. We, when we catch up with them, they're an old couple. They're in their latter years of their life, or relatively speaking. And, but, but they started out as this young couple. They started out, you know, full of excitement, anticipation, and, and looking forward to, you know, all that God had for them. And here they are living righteously before the Lord God. Notice what it says. They were both righteous in the sight of God. Listen, walking blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, 
that does not mean that Zacharias and Elizabeth were sinless. Right? Can we establish that? The text says they walked blamelessly in all the commandments. It's, it's not inferring that they never sinned. We know that because the Bible, plenty of other places, makes that very clear. Most notably, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Everybody sinned and come short of the glory of God, come short of the standard of God. So they weren't perfect, they weren't sinless, but here they are walking along in life, desiring to honor God with their life, wanting and working, that's the way I'd like to say it, walking, they wanted to be and worked to be a godly man and woman. That's a great place for us to stop just a minute and ask ourselves that question. Do I want to be and do I work to be a godly man or woman? Do you want to be and work to be a godly man, a godly woman, a godly person? Now, anybody here that... uh, would say, I, I profess Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've, uh, I, I've given my life to Him. I've depended on Him and Him alone for my salvation. He paid my penalty on the cross. I've given my life to Him. I'm just, anybody in here that would be at that point in their life, and not everybody maybe, but anybody that would be at that point in their life would probably have no problem saying, I want to be a godly man. I want to be a godly woman. Would you? Would anybody have? Most people... Oh, no, I want to be a wretched, miserable sinner, and I, and I wanted to... No, if you're in here... Now, there are people that feel that way, by the way, but if you're in here, there's probably a pretty good chance that you would say, I want to be a godly person. The question would then be, do I work to be a godly man or woman? Okay, I want to be... Zacharias and Elizabeth wanted to be and worked to be a godly man and woman. So the question for us is, do I work to be. Oh, by the way, when I say work to be, again, please, I'm not saying work for your salvation, work for God's approval in your life. Because again, the Bible makes it very clear that it is impossible to work for your salvation. So I'm not talking about working to, to, to become saved or to be a part of the family of God or however you want to say it. But what I'm saying is if you've come to that relationship with Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, are you working to be a godly person? You say, well, I, uh, I, I try to live life the right way and, and not sin. That's nice. That's good. I'm not saying that's bad. That, that's good. But, but that's like saying, that's like saying um, if I want to read more books, I've, I, I've got to stop watching so much television. That's true. But you also need to select some books, purchase some books, open some books, and read some books. You understand what I'm saying? So it's not just about, well, I'm not doing this. What are you doing? What am I doing to be a godly man? To be a godly woman? Because, here's the important point, because we come back to Zacharias and Elizabeth. What I want you to see is their lives and all of it, and it started out, all that they went through, all the, you know, it was in the sight of God. That's what I want you to see. It was in the sight of God. Ladies and gentlemen, God takes notice of your life. <laughs> now, that may be at times a source of great comfort. And it may be at times a source of great discomfort. But the point is, God takes notice. I, I was thinking this morning about a time many, many years ago in our living room, sunken living room floor. We had a sunken living room, which we have again, by the way. We've come full circle. 
in our sunken living room floor, getting on my knees and, and, and sending both of us, surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ many, many years ago. And I, and I, and I don't know, I, you know, by the grace of God, whatever the reasons are, whatever, by the grace of God, when, when I gave my life to Christ, man, I just was, I was eat up with the Word of God. I wanted to know the Word of God. I wanted to know what God's expectations were for my life. I wanted to know what God's plans were for my life. I wanted to know God, which you find in here, by the way. And so I, I, just, I just began to read the Word of God and, and learn and ask questions and, and all that kind of stuff because I, I didn't know diddly about this thing. And before long, I don't know, a couple of years or something, before long, an opportunity opened up for me to begin to teach middle school age boys in a Sunday school class. Was I scared? Absolutely. But, I, but I, I, I wanted to please God with my life. And God was taking notice of where I was in my life and what I was ready for. And God was opening a door for me to step through. A few years after that, we were living in Middle Tennessee. And a, 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 a pastor of a small church up there, uh, I was working for the post office. And a pastor of a small church asked me to, to come part-time and, and be the, the minister of youth, minister of students there at that church. Was I scared? Absolutely, I was. But God was overseeing my life and he was seeing where I was and where I was going and, and, and what my desire was of my life. And he was creating opportunities for me. And a few years after that, Cindy and I both sensed God's call to full-time vocational ministry. We pretty much sold everything uh, that we had and, and moved to Atlanta to begin the educational uh, process and where all that would lead. Was it scary? Sure, absolutely, completely. But God sees our lives. He sees what's going on. He sees where we're going. He opens doors of opportunities as we are willing and desiring, as Zacharias and Elizabeth were, to live righteously, to honor God with our lives. By the way, I'm no, in no way saying that, that I was perfect or we were perfect or that we ever got it right all the time or no. But I'm saying God, God notices. God knows what's going on in your lives, in my life, our lives, just as he knew about Zacharias and Elizabeth. One, one of the... Uh, false ideas that's kind of tossed around a lot, uh, some, is this idea that, that, well, God, if God is even watching all this stuff, he is a distant, cold, uninvolved God. Maybe he got the whole thing started, but after that, you know, it's just happening, and your life is just out there. You're just a, a victim of total random circumstance, and there is no plan or purpose. And if God is even out there, he's watching at a distance. I've even heard committed followers of Jesus make statements similar to that. Something like, well, uh, you know, God's, God's got a whole lot of bigger issues to worry about than, than my, my little issues in my life. There's a Hebrew word that best captures my, my sentiment about that idea. The Hebrew word is balach nah. Let me translate. Baloney. Baloney. Seemed funny when I was thinking about it. Baloney. God cares about you. He cares about what happens in your life. He takes Notice of your lives. Listen, can I, can I just show you a couple passages of Scripture just to, to remind you of this? Look at Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Uh, a little more modern translation puts that verse this way. The Lord is constantly watching everyone and he gives strength to those who faithfully obey him. 
God takes notice of our lives. He cares about our lives. Whatever all is going on in your life today, please don't think that God is distant and cold and uncaring just because things may not be going the way you think they should or, or have. Or, or He's taking notice. Listen, how many times in your life have you done something some act of kindness or, or some way that you wanted to honor God with your life. And you wonder if, if any, what, is it even worth it? Does anybody even notice? Listen to me. No act of kindness. No, no desire to live righteously. No, uh, wa- no, no decision to walk away from a temptation. Uh, no sacrifice. None of it ever goes unnoticed. All of it is seen by the God who cares about our lives and oversees us. Please, if you hear nothing else today, hear that God is not unaware of your life. As I said a moment ago, that should be, can be, is a source of great comfort. And perhaps at times it is a source of discomfort. Because as any loving father, there certainly would be times that he would be disappointed with my actions. But God knows what's going on. In our lives, he sees it. Let me give you another idea that's very obviously closely connected to that. God is concerned about our suffering. Verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. There's certainly no in, intent um, in looking at this to, to bring up any hurt in, in any person's life. But no doubt there are people in this room that might have a special connection to this particular issue for their life. Elizabeth was unable to bear children. Zacharias had no descendants. And can I tell you, in that culture, then, in that day, in many cultures, even still today, but in that culture, then, it was a huge issue. That was a big deal to not have children. For one thing, children carried on the bloodline. Children, children tended to be looked at as a sign of God's approval and God's blessing upon their life. Now, that's not necessarily the case. We know that. I mean, children are a blessing from God. They don't always seem that way, but they are a blessing from God. I'm not saying they're not a blessing from God. But what I'm saying is a, per, a person that doesn't have children doesn't mean that God is not blessing their lives or not working in their life. But in that culture, particularly, it was looked at as a sign of, oh, you're, you're in good standing with God or, oh, you're, something's wrong. And it was a deep, deep hurt in their life. By the way, it, it, as John read a moment ago, if you read verse 24 and 25, Elizabeth's response when she finally finds out that she is pregnant indicates just how deeply this hurt still was in her life. Years later, years after probably, quite honestly, years after they had probably given up hope of ever having children, this was still a deep, deep hurt in her life. And what I want you to understand is God cares about our suffering. Hey, by the way, can I say something about Zacharias and Elizabeth at this point? There's no, you don't, there's no indication of, uh, you know, let's make a deal, God. If you do this for me, then I'll, I'll, I'll serve you. Oh, yeah, I'll, I will serve you. Like you can't, I'll, I'll serve the socks off of you, God, if, you just, if you'll do this for me. No, let's make a deal. Can I say something else? No anger. At least it's not indicated in the text. No anger or resentment at God because it hadn't turned out the way they thought it would turn out. I know people, I bet you know people, who have turned their back on God out of anger because something didn't work out the way they thought it should have worked out. 
God is not unaware of your life, and God is concerned about your suffering. I was reading in the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 7 is the account of uh, the stoning of Stephen. Almost certainly the first person put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen's standing outside the temple and he begins to tell the people, uh, and this is shortly after Christ has been crucified, he's, he's rose, risen from the grave, he's hung out for a while, and then he's gone back to heaven. And he's given the commission to the church to establish the kingdom, all that kind of stuff. So this is not long after the crucifixion. And Stephen begins to stand up in front of the people and uh, basically let them have it. He, he was, uh, he was what, we in, what we in the profession would call a red meat preacher. I mean, you know, it was like, y'all, y'all, y'all know what red meat preaching is? That's where you just, I mean, just rip them, man. Just go after the jugular and tell everybody how bad they're doing and, and how, how, how awful they are and what sinners and how deserving they are of hell and all that kind of stuff. Which, by the way, I'm not saying that's not true. But anyway, um, uh, he, he's just going at it. He said, yeah, let me tell you another thing. Jesus was the Christ. Y'all put him on the cross. Y'all killed him, put him to death. I mean, he's just going at it. Go figure the crowd doesn't receive this message very well. They get hot. Now, I know this may seem hard in our culture to, to understand this, but, but this is an issue they are so passionate about. The Jewish people, this, their belief in God and their belief that they were God's chosen people. And Stephen begins to say, y'all blew it. Y'all put him on the cross. But let me tell you something. God didn't let him stay dead. He rose from the dead. He's the Savior. Of the, you know, he's just going at it. So they pick up stones and they begin to stone the guy. They begin to hurl rocks at him. And as these rocks are, are pounding his body, and as they're striking his head, and, and as Stephen, no doubt, is almost at the point of unconsciousness, he, he makes this statement, which I think is, is fairly remarkable. He said, look, I see heaven open, and the Son of God, the Son of Man, standing at God's right side. Now that's significant because as far as I know, Everywhere in Scripture where it talks about the Son being at the Father's right hand, He's always seated. As far as I know, except for here, or at least that I can think of offhand. This is the only place where, where Stephen says, I see Him and He's standing at the right hand of the Father. Maybe it's just my baptized imagination, but in it, what I see is this idea of the Son standing up as Stephen begins to proclaim the truth of God's Word and, and the Son of God standing up and cheering for His child Stephen, and even as the stones are pelting his body, I can see Christ standing to his feet, maybe even beginning to applaud Stephen for his faithfulness and waiting to welcome Stephen into the kingdom of God. It is not the picture of an uncaring, unconcerned, unloving God. And in the middle of whatever your particular circumstance is, don't you dare think for a second that God doesn't care about it. Because he does. But I need to say this. Some of you have heard me make a statement in referring to people that, that are lost without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you have heard me say this statement. That there is a God and you're not Him. Some of you, have you ever heard me say that? There is a God and you're not Him. In other words, the idea is that people have to understand that they don't get to set the rules. They don't get to decide what is, what is right and what's wrong. God already decided that long before he ever created us. His very nature dictates morality and and what is good. 
And God has decided how we enter into his presence. And God has decided that it's only, God has made all, all, all those things clear. And so I've said that people have to understand there is a God and you're not him. But can I say this to, to those of you here, to those of us who already know Jesus Christ, our personal Savior, we've already trusted him as our Lord and Savior. Sometimes you and I need to be reminded there is a God and we're not him. What I mean is in the midst of your suffering and your hurt and your stuff, and you think, God, what in the world? Why, why would you, how could you love me and let this happen in my life? How, how, could, I, how could I go on and pray like this for years and years and, and nothing happened? God, what in the world is going on? You and I need to remember there is a God and we're not him. And he is so vastly far ahead of us that he knows exactly why and what and when needs to go on in our lives. And how he works that out for a greater good that you and I simply have to believe that God is at work doing. Isaiah 55, 9 says, As far as the heavens are above the earth, so high are your ways above my ways. There is a God, and we're not Him. And I know it's, nat- it's, it's, just, it's just our nature to question and wonder, God, why? What in the world is going on? But please hear me say, God is concerned about your suffering. Don't think that He's not. Let me give you a third, third idea real quickly. God answers our prayers better than we can imagine. That's all right. I think some of you all were mumbling amen. You can say it out loud. It's all right. God answers our prayers better than we can even imagine. Pick it up in verse 8. Now it happened that while, the, while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. The incense offering was basically a demonstration of the prayers of the people. It was a, it was a physical thing they did. They, the priest went in, he offered these incense to burn in the holy place, and it, and it was a picture of the people offering up prayers. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. It was a part of what was known as a Nazarite vow. It was a sign of, of uh, being set aside, of purity, of, of, of holiness. And so that, that, was, that was part of it. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In other words, in the same way the prophet Elijah did. He's going to be that powerful to turn the hearts. Here's the reason. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. God's getting ready to send Christ. Before he does, he sends a forerunner. The man that we come to know as John the Baptist. I said uh, a few moments ago that there were several divisions in the priestly line. There were then within each each priestly line, each, each priestly, I'm sorry, not line, but each division, each priestly division was assigned to the temple. They went, they would go and they would serve at the temple twice a year, one week at a time. Each division had a number of priests. And so there were too many priests for each one of them to get to do what might be considered one of the sacred 
responsibilities. For instance, to, go, to actually go into the holy place and get to, to burn the, the, uh, the incense on the altar. There, there were too many priests for them all to get to do it. And so, they would cast lots, some texts say, basically draw straws. You could think of it that way. To see who would get to go in. When the lot falls to Zacharias, when he, he draws, so to speak, draws the, the, the short straw or long straw, whichever way they did it, and gets to go in there, it is quite likely the most important moment of his entire life because some priests never got to do this at all. Uh, the Mishnah, which is a kind of a book about Jewish traditions and Jewish laws, the Mishnah said that a priest could only, if they got a chance to, they could only offer uh, incense on the altar once in their whole life. And some, like I said, never got to do it. So Zacharias gets to, gets to burn incense on the altar. He gets to go into the holy place and he gets to perform this, this act of worship and service. And so he goes into the temple. The, the, that rectangular box at the top is what we call the holy place. And then you can also see the holy of holies. It was divided by a, a veil, a giant curtain. There's significance in that. I've talked about some of that before. But... But the holy place was where the priests would go and perform the certain uh, things that had to be done. These, all these were types or pictures of, of what God would ultimately accomplish. But you see up there just, just outside of the veil, just outside of the holy of holies, was the altar of incense. And that's where Zacharias went to offer this, this sacrifice of incense, if you will, to God. And while he's in there... An angel of the Lord appears at the right side of the altar of incense, the text specifically says. By the way, I don't think that's just some useless piece of trivia that the writer is giving us. Most of you know, in, in, in really pretty much all cultures, the right side of, of, uh, of, of a throne or a person, whatever, is usually considered the favored side. And so, in essence, what, what God is saying through Gabriel, and by placing Gabriel on the right side of the altar of incense, what he's saying is, I'm about to to show favor on Zacharias. I'm about to, to bless him and Elizabeth in a significant way. Now, real quickly, real, real quickly. Um, it gets a little technical here, and this is, this is not written in stone. This is just what I believe and what other uh, biblical scholars and stuff like that look at and, and believe. The grammatical structure of the statement about Zacharias offering a prayer seems to indicate that it is one particular prayer offered up at one particular time. In other words, not a prayer offered many times, or, you know, th- but this was Zacharias' one prayer that he's offering at one time when the angel says, your prayer has been heard. Now, the automatic assumption would be, well, he, he must have prayed for a child because the first thing the angel says is, after, after saying, don't be afraid, which angels usually have to say to people when he show up, uh, and have that kind of close encounter. First thing he, he says is, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a child. But I do not believe that Zacharias prayed for a child there in the temple. For one thing, it, it just seems hard for me to believe that Zacharias would say, oh God, please, you know, all these years I've been praying, and now I'm praying right now, this is my chance, I'm in here in the temple, so I know I'm really close to you, and God, could I have a child? Boom, angel shows up. You're going to have a child. No. No. I'm too old. I just, I can't see that. I can't imagine praying this prayer in this sacred place. God responds and then all of a sudden you have no faith that that's exactly what, I I just can't, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. But more importantly, 
for Zacharias to pray, now stay with me, I know I'm, but for Zacharias to pray in that moment for something for himself, for, for God to give him a child, would have been way off the chart of, of normalcy for a priest to be doing. Remember, a priest was supposed to be an intermediary between the people and God. That's what he went in there for, was to represent the people. So it seems very unlikely that Zacharias would have gone in there and prayed for himself. What I believe Zacharias did was offer the prayer that probably every priest offered, whether it was a rote one, whether it was their own words, the same prayer, and that was the prayer that represented the prayer of all the people. That was for the deliverance, the salvation of Israel. That's what all the Israelites were looking for, for God to, to get all these foreigners out of here and restore us to your glory and make us your people. That's what I believe Zacharias prayed for. And I believe that's exactly what Gabriel says. Your prayer has been heard. I'm going to send my son. I think it's what God's saying. I'm going to send my son. And that's not all, Zacharias. You've got a part in this because you're going to have a, chi- a child. And, he, and he's going to be great. And, and he's going to bring lots of joy into people's lives. And, and there's going to be lots of all this stuff. Listen, listen. Can you imagine all this is going on? And he's going to turn the hearts of, of the people back to God. And he's going to be a forerunner before the one who's actually going to come to pay the sacrifice. You understand what I'm saying? God answers our prayers better than we can even imagine. Now, I have no doubt that Zacharias and Elizabeth had prayed for years that God would give them a child. Like I said, I don't think he did it then in the temple then, but I think he had prayed that prayer for years that God would give them a child. And now, clearly they are past the age where normally you'd be able to have children. So it's probably not much sense in even praying that one anymore. (laughs) God answers our prayers better, better, better. Let me say it again. You and I have to remember there is a God and we're not him. We may not always understand. Listen, I, can't, I, I can imagine in their house, I can imagine them, them wanting children so badly. I can imagine the almost deafening silence in their house. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because children, whatever all they bring, one thing they do not bring is silence. The, 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 the pitter-patter of little feet on the floor, the little giggles and laughter and all those, the little sayings they come up with. My, my grandson Emery the other day, uh, yesterday or day before yesterday, uh, he, wanted, he had something I wouldn't let him do. He was, he was picking on one of his older grand uh, cousins. And he was picking on him, so I like, got in between him, I stopped him, and I said, no, Emery, no. He says, he's two, he says, Poppy, go to your office. <laughs> That, that kind of stuff, man, it's hilarious. You just, you. Zacharias and Elizabeth's house is silent. It's the one area of their life. Oh, they've been blessed by God and, and they've served God faithfully and done all this stuff. But it's the one area of their life. God answers better than we can possibly imagine. And I'll just close with this. I'll give you the last one so you can fill in the blank. But let me just close with this because it's connected to it, ladies and gentlemen. God expects us to believe what he says. Listen, I, I, don't believe, I don't believe that Gabriel walked, woke up on the wrong side of the bed that morning. I, I don't believe that he was, uh, you know, a mad messenger, an angry angel. I don't think he's just, you know, oh, you don't believe what I say, huh? Pow! I, I, really, don't, I really don't think that's it. I think Gabriel's saying, listen, I, I stand in the presence of God. I am God's ambassador to you and i've just told you you're going to have a child so to doubt me means you're doubting god so since you will not believe god's word you will not be allowed to speak a word 
until God's word comes true in your life. I don't, I, I'm not, I'm just saying that God expects us to believe him. And, and here's why, and we'll close. Here's why God expects us to believe him. Because when I believe God in the midst of a circumstance, by the way, the, 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 the more impossible it seems, the greater degree of faith I need in my life to believe him. Is that not true? Is that not true? The more impossible the situation, the greater the degree of faith that I need in my life. And the writer of Hebrews says, watch this, the writer of Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the key, ladies and gentlemen. Faith is the key to every area of your life. Will you say that with me? Faith is the key. Say it again. Faith is the key. So don't say you have faith in God. Clay, don't say you have faith in God if you won't believe what God says. So, and we'll close, but so God says, be anxious for nothing. Are you? We could look at so many, right? So many promises of God. He knows about our lives. He's concerned about our, our hurts, ladies and gentlemen. He answers better than we can possibly imagine. But he does have an expectation that we will believe what he says. Zacharias and Elizabeth are a great model. They weren't perfect. They didn't get right all the time. But they had a close encounter that opened the door to God using them in a way that they could have never imagined when they started out. Thanks, Pastor. As we heard Pastor Clay explain today, God is not a cold, distant, uncaring God. He loves us, feels our sorrows and pain, and hears our prayers. He may not always answer the way we want Him to, but because of His love for us, we can be assured that He'll always answer our prayers better than we can even imagine. Zacharias doubted God's messenger, which meant that he was doubting God's Word. As Zacharias, you and I need to take God at His Word and believe His promises for our lives, no matter what our circumstances may look like. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross, And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.